Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Did y'all have a good Christmas? I did. But we're going to depart from Christmas tonight. We're going to look at uh, Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26. Verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. So tonight our message is titled, Christ's Reproach, the Choice of Faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Pray that you'd be with uh, Pastor Bowers while he's away, give him safety as they travel. And Lord, pray that you'd open our minds and hearts tonight and that you would speak to us, Lord, about your reproach and what great riches it is. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So this chapter is about evidence uh, of genuine saving faith. The word that's translated evidence there is uh, the word reprove. And it's the idea of bringing in the evidence to convict somebody. But in this case, you know, it's just it's the proof, it's the evidence. So, as he says here in verse 1, true faith has substance. It has the real material of our blessed hope, the hope that we're expecting, the return of the Savior to redeem us uh, and all of creation. And can people see, the question here is, can people see the biblical evidence or biblical proof that you and I really know the Lord? What does that evidence look like? What should people see in our lives that proves that we all know God and that we've received eternal life from Jesus Christ? And so the Bible tells us about the substance and the evidence in several people's lives that demonstrated they had real faith. And of course, in our verses, the evidence of Moses' faith. This evidence that showed up in his life when he was 40 years old. If we have genuine Christianity, if we have saving faith, the Bible, these verses here tell us that this same evidence will be in our lives. And so I want to look at a couple of different things. First of all, the treasures in Egypt that Moses possessed, and then the choice of Moses. In the treasures of Egypt, verse 26, it says... I've got to turn back esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. One of those treasures that Moses possessed was the gold of kings. 
Now, I have to say, all my life I've been fascinated with Egypt. I've never really have a desire to go there or anything, but the pyramids, in particular those statues and those uh, caskets and all those things that had that really finely done faces and all that, and they've got some other jewels uh, put in there, you know, like for the eyes maybe or something like that. But it's, I've always been thoroughly impressed by that. But those pharaohs amassed gold all, from all over the place. Extremely wealthy. And, uh, you know, over the years, they've dug up some of the, or gone into those pyramids and so forth. That's a pretty big uh, tomb, you know, those things where they uh, buried those pharaohs. But all that gold and so forth, um, I mean, that would have been something that uh, Moses would have had. He would have had the right to it one day at least. But uh, in, as it says there in verse 24, he was counted as uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I don't know all the lineage there on that. It means possibly that he would have been a Pharaoh at one day, uh, depending on sons and all that kind of thing. But Moses had, after you know, leaving his parents, being taken away, his mother raised him what, a few years. But then he was uh, just like he was Pharaoh's daughter's son. And so he enjoyed all the benefits of royal life. For example, in Acts chapter 7, verse 21, it says... And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up. You remember the story about uh, Moses' mother putting him in a basket and in the, the Nile there. And so he was cast out, but Moses, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished, her, him, nourished him for her own son. So whatever riches or whatever wealth or whatever treasures Pharaoh and his family had, Moses had the benefit of that. Now you think about growing up in, uh, you know, they didn't have free enterprise in in, uh, Egypt. And that means just like most monarchies or a lot of government systems, communism and so forth, only the, there may be a lot of wealth but only the people at the top are the ones that have it. And that means that Pharaoh was loaded with gold and all other kind of things. For example, uh, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, uh, just an example of this is when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, the house, the meat of his table, the food, the sitting of his servants, so he's got slaves, the attendants of his ministers, people waiting on him all the time, and their apparel. So not just the apparel of the king and his family, but all of his servants decked out, his cupbearers, and the ascent by the which he went up to the house of the Lord. So he had a path or a way that he actually went to worship and that was even special. 
once she saw that, there was no more spirit in her. She'd kind of, I think, come to, you know, to see that, find out, she was going to hope to find out that, that Solomon wasn't as special as she'd heard. But the point there is that these kings had vast amounts of wealth. And uh, no doubt uh, Pharaoh was treated the same way, enjoyed the same type things. Uh, when Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 8, he said, I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of men as musical instruments and that of all su- such. So, I mean, they couldn't cut on the radio or the CD player or whatever. They didn't need it. They could just call them whatever type of choir or musician or people to come in and sing anytime, whatever they wanted. And they had to hop too when they did that. So their their clothing, their food, Moses had all of that. Um, this is bowl season for college football. And uh, the reason they like to go to bowl games is not just to play some other team that's good. It's because when you travel to those bowl games, you are... I wasn't ready to play by the time I went a couple of bowl games um, down in Florida. And I mean to tell you, they feed you. And there's no spare. uh, I saw for Clemson they uh, they ate 495 pounds of meat at one meal. Uh, We we had a bag of oranges in our room when we got there. He's a player, you know. You've never seen a navel orange until it's that big. I mean, I kid you not, bigger than grapefruit around here. And it's like that all the time, but that's just for one week. This is the way these kings are treated every day of their lives. There's the privilege of royal training that Moses enjoyed. Acts 7.22 says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deeds. Now, we got a pretty good idea from Daniel's life what it's referring to here. You know, if you're going to be a Pharaoh, you had the highest education you could possibly get that there was anywhere. And we know not only was uh, Egypt wealthy with gold and all that kind of thing, because it was a vast empire, I mean... Have you ever thought about who built those pyramids? The stones on those things are massive. I mean, they're stones probably as big as this room there. How did they move that? And how is it they could make it so that it was, that it's utterly level and flat and all that? These, these were not slouch people in, in their work and what they knew. And uh, Moses would have been trained to be a military leader as well. That would have been part of his training. One of the most well-known libraries in all the history of the world was in Egypt. And so here's a a series of kingdoms in Egypt that were uh, world-leading and so forth. And Moses is getting all the benefit of this. 
probably never imagined thing. It's kind of like a modern, modern American kid, you know. At Christmas, they don't ever have to use a stick for a gun anymore or whatever, you know, or have imagination because they, they got a whole room full of toys. That's what Moses had. Um, in 1 Kings 4.30, it says, And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. Now, I never paid attention to that before. But it compared Solomon to Egypt because that was a place with tremendous, in their day, technological understanding. Uh, that You know, Egypt would normally be a desert, but they used... Um, canals and so forth to water their crops. They were a tremendously prosperous nation. And I think too of the carnal pleasures of pagan life. Now it mentions here that um, Moses rejected at the end of verse 25 the pleasures of sin for a season. Um a lot of times, one of the major things, the reason people are are so wicked, some of them, is because when you have a lot of money, you can buy whatever you want. Uh, you, If you read about, and I don't encourage you to, but if you ever read about any NBA players' lives, sometimes they'll have children from like 10 different women. But they can afford it. You're making, you know, $100 million a year. Whatever car you want, whatever. And I don't know what kind of chariots they had for Pharaoh. <laughs> I can tell you this wasn't just a little shack that looked like a, you know, a, a, a farmer's wagon or something like that. They had the veneration that they showed toward royalty. So he's taken as Moses, as just a child, is taken as uh, Pharaoh's daughter, son. And, um, you know, people had to bow to him just as a little boy. Remember in the book of Esther, the reason uh, Haman wanted to kill Mordecai was why? He didn't bow and give him worship. When Haman walked down the street, he's, he's not even the top, top dog, but he's, when he goes down the street, everybody had to bow to him like he was God. You know, they didn't have any bat talking. You, you told the servant what to do, and they're, they're doing it right away. And um, that's, that's the way it is for many rulers, certainly in China places like that, several places all around the world. You're, you're considered a god. All the, the Roman emperors were considered a god. And that's one of the reasons the persecution of the church, the Christians in the early years is because, again, they wouldn't bow to the emperor and recognize him as god. But Moses had all that. And then there was also the possibility of him taking the the throne of Pharaoh. Depending on, again, what type of 
children and how the all lined up and how Moses did, it would be certainly be up to Pharaoh to decide who was going to be the king, but uh, that could have fallen to Moses. He was getting all the training. Uh, you know, they just like they did with Daniel. I was going to mention this a while ago. But you know, when the Babylonians conquered all these nations and God pictured them as the head of gold, so perhaps the greatest empire ever in the history of the world. Every time they conquered somebody, they would take the smartest young men in the conquered nation and train them, educate them. You know, that's what they they did with Daniel. And so this is the kind of treatment that uh, Moses was receiving anything that he wanted. He had it. And you're talking about treasures, just unimaginable. But this passage is telling us that the way that Moses responded to that was evidence that he had faith. Not any kind of special faith, but just faith that we would call saving faith. And he made a choice about that. He came to a point in his life... And the time, it says in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, come to years, well, we would consider he'd already been a man for 20 years. Because in Acts, it tells us uh, that when he was, and when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren. Now, you know, they they say that actually most of what any of us learned, we learned before we were five years old. And I I believe that. Um, And so I know that probably, I, I would guess that probably for most of his life, they didn't want, after the first few years, they didn't want any, they didn't want any of Moses' family around Pharaoh's house. Remember, they considered Israelite shepherds. They were just scum. They were people that, you know, keep them away from the Egyptians, but especially the Pharaoh and so forth. So I don't know how much he actually remembered from when he was a child, but he says when he was 40 years old, he, he came into his heart I need to find out something about the Israelites. Somebody, they probably kept that from him for a while. I don't know. But it was an age in which he, I know this, he fully grasped everything that Egypt was offering to him. You know, if you're if you're young and you grow up in a family that's wealthy or poor, it doesn't make any difference. You don't know really much anything else a lot of the time. But when you're 40 years old, you do. That's why most people that get saved are saved when they're younger. They're not thinking about all the major issues of life like they are when they've got kids, when they own a business, 
when they're, you know, all the, got all these other things going on, in-laws, outlaws, um, just got a promotion, got a wife that's not interested in religion or a husband or something like that. There's a lot more to consider when you're 40 years old than you are when you're 15. But Moses, at this particular time in his life, the Lord apparently started working in his heart. And the fact is, I I believe that basically every person on earth, there's some point in their life in which God brings us along in our grasp or understanding of truth. Maybe at a funeral, something like that. It it may be when you've got a friend that dies, uh, just as a teenager. It could be if your family breaks up. There's a lot of things that the Lord can use and does use to... uh, Get us to start thinking about things that are more serious. He brings it to a place of, of decision, a place of choice. You know, Daniel was still a pretty young fellow. And God brought him to a place where he realized, I can't eat the food. I've got all this life ahead of me. I, of an opportunity to, I mean, it ended up being the second most powerful man in the world twice, two different kingdoms. Anything and everything that he could want, all the power, servants and all this. And he said, I'll defile myself if I eat this food. You know, he had three buddies it seems like they came to think about this after him. I don't know particularly, but how many other young Jews, males, were in that training program? I'm sure there were more than just four of them. Did they think about these things? Um... And Isaiah, Isaiah remembers the particular time. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he realized that not only that he was a sinner, but all of Israel was full of sinners. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell you know, in a, a nation, a people of unclean lips. And God cleansed him, and then God said to him, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah stepped forward. But not many people do. And God's going to bring you throughout your life in different times, different where you, you grasp some truth, and it gets a hold of your... You realize truth makes demands on our lives. The way we think, the way we talk, who our friends are, 
It causes us to realize things about our families. It causes us to think about the impact of things that have happened in our lives and how we've lived to this point. Moses is 40 years old. And so he made some choices according to our passage here that were evidence of his faith. The first one is the choice of identification. In verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, he looked like an Egyptian, because he was. In the way that he'd lived, in the character he'd learned, the culture and all that. I think it was... uh, you know, the what was his father-in-law's name? Jethro. They came and told him that... They, the, the daughters came and told Jethro that an Egyptian had helped them. Um, but here at this point, he said, I'm not going to be an Egyptian anymore. I'm not going to be royalty anymore. And this kind of challenge has to be made by everybody, everybody at some point. With whom am I going to identify? Joshua gave that challenge to Israel, the nation. In Joshua 24, verse 15, it says there, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods that your father served on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, When Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments, there were a bunch of people waiting to, I guess, to instill or go back to Egyptian gods and they put pressure on Aaron. And when Moses came down and saw the idolatry, the golden calf, and the wickedness that was taking place, he said, it says, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. How many twelves? How many tribes? How many twelves? How many tribes were there in Israel? Well, there are 12, but only one is mentioned. And you talk about choosing sides. They, they slaughtered their own people. Or how about John chapter 6 when Jesus is explaining to huge crowds about who He is. He is the bread of life. Moses didn't give you the true bread. I'm the true bread. In verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And so Jesus turns to the twelve and he says this, Will ye also go away? And Peter gives a great answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. 
or Acts 27, Acts chapter 2, verse 27 and following it. Uh, well, Peter got through preaching there at Pentecost. A, a nation of Jews who hold fast to Old Testament religion, Moses and all that, all the Ten Commandments, and he presents to them that Christ is the Messiah. It's the Jesus is the Messiah, I should say. <laughs> Jesus was the Christ. And they responded, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And they've received forgiveness of sins. They've received the Holy Ghost. What was, was it the first time? 8,000? Or is that what the total? There was a few thousand there that made that choice. I don't know how many of them lasted, but I know this. That was just a fraction of the people who were there and heard that message. Choice of identification. You know, you know, Baptists are some of the most respected people in the world, you know. Being a Christian. Of course, in the South, I guess we're, we used to be kind of lucky, I guess, because everybody, there's a Baptist church on every corner. And that used to mean a lot more than it does now. But, you know, if you, if you live in Chapel Hill and they find out you're one of those kind of Baptists, <laughs> what do you do then? Do you identify as a believer of the Bible? I remember this lady <laughs> said to me, uh, so you're one of those kind of preachers that believe that you ought to go to every service. Uh, a good friend of mine in school, they were they were Christians. They they had a singing group, and their mother said to me, "You know, you can be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good." Standing right there with my parents who uh, were not real supportive at that time. We've got to choose who we're going to identify with. There is the choice of God's people and the scorn that comes upon God's people. Verse 25, he says, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. If you were standing in a crowd of people and somebody in the crowd started talking about Lighthouse and they were laughing and making fun of us, would you step forward and say that you're one, you're a member there? I remember I was, heard a uh, guy in South Carolina, he was held office in the you know, state office, and he was at some, I guess it was in the, con you know, the state c congress, and he heard these two two uh, colleagues there. They were talking about some piece of legislation that had been brought forward, and uh, they were talking about good night. That must be done by some of those fundamentalists. 
And he said, I are one. He knew that's what they thought about him. You know, don't even know how to speak proper English. Just a dumb Christian. He wasn't ashamed. The choice of God's people and their scorn. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, Jesus said this, He that is not with me is against me. And he that scattereth not with me, uh, gathereth not with me, scattereth abroad. Uh, in John 15, Jesus said this to his disciples, verse 19 and 20: If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, I have, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you: The servant is not greater than his lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. You know, every preacher wants to preach to crowds. But if you do, what does that mean? If we're loved by the world... We certainly don't love the Lord. Do you ever get discouraged or depressed because there's only just a... Let's see how many I got. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, maybe 22. I didn't count them exactly right. But I mean, it's 22. That's all we got. Does that discourage you? Does it embarrass you? You know, people ask you, how many people do y'all have in church Sunday? No, one. How many? <laughs> I said, <laughs> was it 32 or 132? In Hebrews 13, turn over to chapter 13, verse 12. Now remember, there's no doubt in my mind that Paul wrote Hebrews. And he says in verse 12, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. God the Son, in a human body, suffered outside the gate. He's, He's not even fit to be inside the city gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him, without the camp, bearing his reproach. And of course, Moses had to make the choice of the rejection of temporal pleasures, the the reject all that the world had to offer there. Again in verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect and the recompense of the reward. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells the folks there at the church in Ephesus, Ephesus was the city that was a location of a, a very famous uh, temple where gods were worshipped and where around the outside of the temple there were prostitutes. That was part of the worship. 
And Paul writes to them in Ephesians 5 and says, we're not to be participators with them. We're not to fellowship with them. The people that do that are going to hell. And we need to be those who are approving what's acceptable to God. It ought to be everything that we're doing is trying to find out what is pleasing to God. Not what the world likes or applauds or anything like that. And the last thing, so he's, he's talking about, talked about the time of his choice when God is dealing with him. And I, I certainly believe that we miss opportunities that you'll never have again. I'm very grateful that the Lord is a merciful God and, you know, the God of the second chance. I don't really like that, but He's given us so many other opportunities, but we can miss our opportunities. We can squander them. The choice of identification, the choice of God's people, the rejection of temporal pleasures, but the true appreciation of the value of Christ's re- reproach is stated in verse 26. Esteeming. In other words, he's evaluating it and counting it up. Counting or appreciating or evaluating the reproach of Christ. Greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. I mean, think about that. All that, those treasures that Moses had access to that were laid at his lap. He said in his mind and in his heart at 40 years old, I'd rather have the reproach of the Lord than all this treasure and all this wealth You know, if you got a prosperous family business, you know, and you're one of the children, and your dad or your granddad or somebody down the line is it's already got the business up and going, everybody in the family's getting wealth from it. Everybody in the family has nice cars, nice houses, and all that kind of stuff. And it comes your time to start enjoying some of that wealth, maybe running the business or taking over some of it. And it's going to conflict with truth in the Bible. What do you do? When your brothers and your sisters, your dad, your mom, can't understand why you'd make such a stupid choice. You never didn't have any common sense to say something like that or, you know, whatever. Or your friends. Moses had it all. And he said, the greatest 
treasure I could have is to share in the reproach that belongs to Jesus Christ. Look at that again. Look at verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. You know, Jesus put it like this, Luke 9, 26. He says, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and his fathers and of the holy angels. That's the reason some people don't adopt dress standards. The Bible talks about dress all over the place. But you know, if you dress like a a Baptist, (laughs) you're going to be odd. Romans 8, though, explains this. Verse 17. Now, he said, we're going to exchange. If we're ashamed of Christ here, when He comes in His glory, He's going to be ashamed of us. Romans 8, 17 and 18 says, For if children, then heirs... Heirs of God. I guess Moses was an heir of Pharaoh. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. And this is verse. For I reckon, I've added it up, I've counted the cost, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So I'm asking tonight, does your faith compel you to choose the reproach of Christ? There's a woman that wrote this song. Everybody's familiar with it. It says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver of gold. I'd rather be His than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to His dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to His holy name. He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let Him lead. And then the chorus, of course, than to be the king of a vast domain or to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Moses could have written that song. And so Christ's reproach, this chapter says, is a choice of faith. It's evidence that you and I have faith if we make that choice. Father, we thank you for this passage.
Thank you that it's plain. And Lord, I'm sure that many of the people here tonight have already made this type of choice, and yet sometimes we're forced to make this choice over and over. I pray especially for the younger ones. That is, they're brought into this challenge that they'll determine that having your reproach upon their lives is the greatest treasure they could have. And may the lighthouse, Lord, until you come, may it always be a church that's made up of people who value the reproach of their Savior. We pray these things in His name. Amen.